Welcome to Ragback. My name's Frank Burton. We've got a great show lined up for you. I'm talking some more on the subject of unrecorded history. Also, we're popping across to Singapore to talk to the poet Theopolis Quek. It's a great interview coming up later. So, Theopolis Quek will be joining us in a while. He's a fantastic poet and he really knows his stuff too. You'll see what I mean. He has a new book out right now. It's called Moving House. Here's one of the things he's going to be saying to me. There's been a lot of talk in the literary scene about the sin of appropriation. And I think that's something that many writers can quite easily or unintentionally fall into. And there's a very thin line in practice uh, I think between empathy and appropriation. I think all writers kind of try to start from a place of imaginative identification. So you would try to put yourself in someone else's shoes, walk around in it and inhabit their perspective. Um, and then um, ideally through your writing, bring their perspective to a wider audience um, so that more people would be able to empathize um, with this, this individual situation. We were talking last week, weren't we, about unrecorded history and how the vast majority of your experiences on Earth are going to slip through the cracks like the vast majority of everybody else's. Even famous historical figures, we only know the basics about them, right? Even Samuel Pepys, whose diaries are still in print and could easily fill a whole shelf. He was the 17th century equivalent of one of those people who Snapchat their 11s. Imagine if Samuel Pepys was alive today. He'd be tweeting every 15 seconds. But even then, those 140 characters wouldn't capture everything about the environment he was in at the time of writing. There would probably be much more interesting things happening a few feet away from him. A pigeon feasting on an abandoned subway wrapper. Or a baby butterfly saying its first word. A baby butterfly, that's a caterpillar I suppose, isn't it? And they don't talk. I'm not having a pop at Samuel Pepys here. He'd be a weird person to have a pop at, right? Hey Frank, I really enjoyed hearing you sticking it to Samuel Pepys last week. You've really got your finger on the proverbial pulse right now. Yeah! I'm not having a pop at Samuel Pepys, I just like saying his name. So I'm taking this opportunity to say it as often as possible, while the opportunity is there, Samuel Pepys. Anyone who has a verb as their surname, that's a good name, whatever it is, you know. Lots of musicians in a similar situation, Britney Spears, Ben Folds, Buster Rhymes. Nouns as a surname, that's a good one too. Alicia Keys. I refer to the keys to my van as my Alicia's and it feels good to do it. It's not exactly rhyming slang, it's association slang. I'm not trying to popularise the expression, by the way. That's just my little private name for them when I can't find my keys. I'm like, oh, where's my Alicia's? 
I feel slightly reluctant to tell you about that. To be honest, it's kind of a personal thing. Let's move on. Unrecorded history. That's what we were talking about. And the point I was making about Samuel Pepys. You see, you can imagine it, can't you? Some guy called Samuel spying on his neighbours through his neck curtains. The point I was making about Samuel Pepys was even that guy with his shelf full of diaries, the only stuff we know about him was the details he decided to write down. That's all. We don't know anything else. What colour were his eyes? You can't trust his portrait painter. They were the Instagram filters of their day. Hey mate, can you give me green eyes just for the hell of it? I quite fancy having green eyes. Stick some cat whiskers on me for a laugh as well. I'm not going to read every single one of his diaries to check, but I bet you he never got round to mentioning the colour of his own eyes. Why would he anyway? It's his diary. Why would you do that? March the 17th, 1665. My eyes are a beigey sort of colour. You wouldn't do that, would you? Uh, perhaps you could say it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what colour Samuel Pepys' eyes were. It doesn't make a difference to anything. I suppose this begs the question, why not? Why is that not important? I suppose you history buffs are going to say, yeah, well, he wrote a first-hand account of the Great Fire of London. And I say to that, yeah, but what colour were his eyes? We'd have known about the Great Fire of London anyway. Other people were there as well. It's not like Samuel Pepys' diary. If that got destroyed somehow by some kind of fire, if some kind of fire had destroyed Samuel Pepys' diary, we would still know about the Great Fire of London. And even if that was the only record of the Great Fire of London and it got destroyed and therefore no one knows about it, who cares, right? They've put the fire out, presumably. I've been to London and when I went there, one of the first things that struck me about it was it wasn't on fire. Presumably, someone put the fire out at some point. I realise this is going to annoy the history buffs and I have no wish to annoy the history buffs. Imagine if that was my intention. I'd have idiots high-fiving me in the street going, hey, Frank, I really loved it when you stuck it to the history buffs last week. You're really pushing the proverbial envelope. Envelope? 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 Hey, Frank, I really loved it when you made that sly observation about the pronunciation of the word envelope. That was a proper jab in the ribs to all those people who were saying the word envelope incorrectly. That's what society needs right now. If I'm going to do that, I suppose I might as well start criticising folks for mispronouncing the word pronunciate. How do you pronunciate that? <laughs> you see, the thing is, according to whoever it is who decides these things, people who mispronunciate the word pronunciate are saying it wrong. But really, who cares about that? If someone says a particular word slightly wrong, not even wrong as such, just not the way whoever it is who decides these things have decided you're supposed to say it. It still makes sense, right? It's not gibberish. It's not as though the person who's saying the word slightly wrong has behaved immorally in some way. Again, that's not the point I was making. I'm just saying, maybe we're remembering the wrong things. 
Like I was saying last week, you know those occasions where you pass a total stranger on the street and you look at each other and you smile as though you have some kind of connection. Actually, there's more to it than that. You do have a connection. That moment where the two of you smile at each other, that's an actual thing. That's a thing that happened. And it's a thing that will be forgotten by both parties in a matter of moments. But during that moment, during that moment where it's happening, that's a brief burst of positivity. A good thing has happened and you're not going to remember it On the other hand, let's imagine the person you passed in the street didn't smile at you. Let's imagine they looked at you as though you were the worst kind of scum. You remember that, right? That ruined the rest of your day. The fact that a total stranger looks at you as though you are somehow beneath contempt. Funny how it works, isn't it? We forget the positives and remember the negatives. You see what I mean when I say we remember the wrong things? I raised this subject last week and I've spent the last seven days thinking about it, thinking about ways in which I could possibly make a conscious effort to remember the good things that happened to me instead of consigning them to the swirling void that is unrecorded, unremembered history. I found myself deliberately wandering the streets waiting to have that kind of positive experience. And then a really cool thing happened. It was getting dark, a little bit too cloudy for a sunset. And I walked past a street light just as it was turning itself on. A couple of flickers to kickstart itself and then boom, on it went. I wondered how often that happened to this particular light. How often did a person passing by notice it turning itself on like that? Presumably most days this was an event that went unwitnessed. All we know is the light turned itself on at some point and then turned itself off again when the sun came up. I noticed further along the street some of the lights hadn't turned themselves on yet. So I hung around watching, waiting for that moment to happen again. Another flick, flick, boom. Then third and fourth in quick succession. Yes, I was going to remember this. And I was going to forget that voice in my head telling me I was wasting my time and there were much more meaningful and productive things I could be doing with my time than waiting for streetlights to turn themselves on. Because maybe I've been remembering the wrong things. I wondered if there was a way I could access my past experiences and locate all the times in my life on which I happened to notice a streetlight turning itself on. I knew that I witnessed that thing happening plenty of times, but because there was something within me telling me those experiences weren't important, I've forgotten the details now. Well, no longer, I decided. I'm going to record and remember these things for posterity. Which is why, dear listener, I would like to talk to you about the colour of my eyes. They're not green, but there are green bits in them. They're brown, but sometimes they're a lighter brown, depending on what kind of light you're looking at. Does that mean that my eyes actually change colour throughout the day? Maybe I've got that condition the Benedict's got, where your eyes change colour. They do seem to do that subtly. 
envelope, 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 flick, flick, boom. That's what society needs right now. Envelope, 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 envelope. Who cares about that? Flick, flick, boom. Maybe flick, flick, boom. We're remembering the wrong things. Unrecorded, unremembered history. Unrecorded, unremembered history. Un, 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 unrecorded envelope. Un, 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 unrecorded envelope. Envelope. Flick, flick, boom. Hey Frank, I really enjoyed hearing you sticking it to Samuel Pepys last week. You've really got your finger on the proverbial pulse right now. Yeah. Flick, flick, boom. Yeah. Flick, flick, boom. Yeah. Un, 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 unrecorded envelope. That's what society needs right now. That's what society needs right now. That's what society needs right now. Flick, flick, boom, yeah. Now it's time for this week's guest. Theopolis Quek is a poet and writer of creative non-fiction. He's been widely published in the UK and in Singapore. As mentioned earlier, this year saw the release of his new collection, Moving House. It's a spellbinding experience. We'll talk about the collection shortly, but first, here's Theopolis reading one of his poems. This poem is a Brexit poem. In every sense, it was written the morning that the referendum results was announced. It's 24th June, 2016. And it's a poem about, I think, the, the sense of 
uh, dislocation that lots of people felt in the immediate aftermath of Brexit. And also, I think the buildup of ugly uh, tensions within the community, within every community, I think, that preceded and immediately followed the referendum. But this poem is also not about Brexit in the sense that it's a poem about red kites. So I spent some time uh, in Oxford in the UK. Oxfordshire is the home of red kites. And when red kites were reintroduced to the UK, they were reintroduced from the Stoken Church gap between London and Oxford. And red kites were once native to, I mean, are still native to Turkey, Morocco, many parts of Europe, um, and once also to England. Um, they were declared vermin by the English crown in the 17th century and hunted nearly to extinction, but successfully reintroduced um, after the end of the Cold War in 1989. So this is a poem about my favorite bird and also about Brexit. 24th June, 2016. No red kites over the field this morning. However hard I looked, I could not find a single cresting pair their high crosses invisible, as if unpitched from the grass. No dry swoop, no sounding. No clatter from morning's fed sparrows rising in alarm. No hare's carcass eaten behind our wall. Nothing astir. No courting on the fell in curious patterns. No stumbling display of swift shadows bending above the Y. No haunt, no song. Only the heavens blew graceless fire, and then, as a ghost pursued across a moor, the hunting horn's burly cry, crucify, crucify, crucify. I grew up as an only child, and I think uh, my parents bought lots of Lego to keep me occupied most of the time with the hope that I would kind of sit in a corner and build things on my own. Um, but I was a lot more interested in making stories out of the Lego. Um, and thanks to my dad, who is a fantastic storyteller um, and who is standing right over there, um, we <laughs> managed to put together lots of stories just from the Lego and, and build that into different worlds, as it were. So I suppose the experience of world building coming up with plots and narratives and characters uh, was something that uh, grew out of that experience. Later on, when I went to school and started writing stories as well, I suppose it was just something that I found came quite, quite naturally. But it was really only later in my teenage years that I started writing poetry. At that stage, uh, I attended this uh, thing um, called the Creative Arts Program in Singapore um, that's run by the Ministry of Education here. Uh, kind of brings kids together from different schools um, who have some kind of pretension towards writing poetry and shows us how it's properly done. Quite thankful to my instructors and mentors uh, from that program. They were very good at showing us that we weren't as good as we thought we were and that the real practice of writing poetry would require a lot more hard work and editing than most teenagers are willing to put in at that stage. Uh, that was what kind of got me to write uh, more seriously and to develop my craft uh, in a more intentional way. I'm interested in the fact that you began your story by building things from Lego bricks because that's kind of uh, reading your poems that they're, they're just kind of perfectly constructed things you know what I mean uh, that's how, the best way that I can describe them um, and it's very nice uh, of you to say. 
And uh, I, was, I was just wondering, um, what would you describe yourself as like a, a perfectionist? Maybe not so much of a perfectionist as um, just simply an obsessive, <laughs> I think. Uh, I, I went to university in the UK and during my time there, uh, I used to have this little ritual once every two weeks uh, where I would put myself in the same cafe and sit down at the same table if I could help it um, and not allow myself to get up until I'd finished writing a poem. And this could be, uh, well, on, on days that the, the writing happened more quickly, this could be two, three hours. On longer days, it would be five, six hours. But just kind of forcing myself to stick at it until I had something that was possible. In terms of the process, I would then usually leave uh, whatever I'd written to stew for 24 hours or 48 hours, come back to it, make a few tweaks, and then send it out into the world. After that happens though, the poem is no longer mine. So I, I don't see it as my own anymore. It kind of goes out into the world. Sometimes I would post it on social media or send it off to an editor or a magazine somewhere to be published. Um, and from that point onwards, um, whatever criticism or praise it receives, it's no longer my child. So it exists on its own in the world. Um, and I think this process of disowning my work almost as soon as I've written it has also helped me to grow as a writer because I don't feel that bound to the stuff that I've written in the past. Um, and I identify the most uh, at any one point with the stuff that I've written most recently. In terms of the, um, th that little kind of ritual that you have of having that certain seat in that certain cafe and having that certain amount of time, do you, do you still do that sort of thing? Yeah, not, not so much now. Um, I think after working life started, it's, it's harder to set aside the same uh, morning every fortnight or every few weeks or months. And usually now the, the interval between poems has extended into weeks or months as well. But still, I think um, there is always a sense that when I sit down to write something, I would try to finish it in one sitting, if possible. Because uh, I think there's something about poetry wanting to capture a certain scene or moment that lends itself um, to that kind of uh, start-to-finish construction. When I'm working on creative nonfiction, for instance, uh, so I, I write some criticism, creative nonfiction, do some translation as well. So with longer pieces, um, it's easier to kind of come back to them and work in a piecemeal manner until, until it's done. But with a poem, you start with a frame of mind and you also kind of want to finish in that same frame of mind. Um, otherwise you become a different person as well. And it's harder to inhabit the self that was writing that poem. One thing I wanted to ask you about was that a, a lot of your poems use kind of real life events as a starting point for the poem. And that could be like a new story or a historical event and you, uh, so you, you'll have that at the start of the poem and that as, as a little preface to the poem and then you'll have the um, you'll go off on one in the poem you see what I mean so I mean can you describe your process of using that kind of source material as the basis for the work so this kind of links to what I said earlier about wanting to finish a poem in one sitting not all the time when I sat down to write a poem would I already have something in mind to write about so as with all um, 20 something year olds, um, I would find myself on Facebook or Instagram and kind of scrolling through news stories, desperately trying to find something to latch onto and write about. Um, usually I would already have something in mind that I want to say, but the search I think for a hook or for a scene um, or for a story to hang the idea on, um, that can often take the longest time in the process of, of constructing the poem. And then I think once, once I found the right 
story or the right window or the right event um, to respond to and frame what I have to say, then the poem itself comes fairly quickly. So you're right in pointing out that lots of the poems have hung themselves on um, events and, and particular instances. And I think that's quite deliberate because that allows me a window to frame the idea. I mean, it seems to me that a lot of your poems are about human experience, you know, across lots of different sets of circumstances. So you've got ones with historical settings, kind of international settings, and sort of through writing about the experience of being human, you know, and within that, I think, just this is just my interpretation. So within that, the nationality of the person that you're writing about, or their age, or their gender, or what time period they're in, that seems to me that that's of secondary importance. What's more important is that they're a, that you're writing about them and they're a human being and you're writing about human experience. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think this is a, a tricky one because, I mean, there, there's been a lot of talk in the literary scene about the sin of appropriation. And I think that's something that many writers can quite easily or unintentionally fall into. And there's a very thin line in practice, uh, I think, between empathy and appropriation. I think all writers kind of try to start from a place of imaginative identification. So you would try to put yourself in someone else's shoes, walk around in it and inhabit their perspective. Um, and then um, ideally through your writing, bring their perspective to a wider audience um, so that more people would be able to empathize um, with this, this individual situation. And of course, there are so many pitfalls in doing so. And I don't think there are any easy answers as to claiming someone else's experience as your own. But, and there's a whole kind of spectrum um, between what's okay and, and what's really not. So it's a line that I try to navigate carefully as well. I don't think I do it perfectly all the time. Um, but in terms of focusing on different parts of experience, I think you're definitely right. I think what you want to focus on is not each individual's um, specific identity or specific circumstance, which is theirs, right? And you don't want to claim that as something that you can understand uh, living miles away or years away in, in historical terms. But what you want to be able to identify with is something common, um, something that uh, connects their experience with yours and something that then becomes the springboard for others to inhabit the same events or the same story as well. So, so yes, and thankfully poetry lends itself to that because um, the poem is about the moment, but it's also about what transcends the moment uh, and, and can draw in the reader or meet the reader wherever they are. The poem inhabits that kind of magical space between a very particular moment and circumstance uh, and a much wider sense of what it means to connect with each other and to be human. Some poems hit that sweet spot, not all of them do. I think it's a, it's a journey. Uh, if I ramble on any more about this, I'll just sound more and more cliched. So you have to stop me right there. <laughs> no, no, it's a, it's, it's a good answer. I mean, you might have even asked, uh, answered the question that I was going to ask, which is how you go about kind of transplanting yourself into uh, the character in the poem who is living through something that you don't have direct personal experience of. Um, and kind of getting into that person's mindset. I mean, do, do you have a, a particular way of doing that? No, I, I suppose it demands quite a bit of humility on the writer's part and, and kind of not pretending to know fully and being comfortable with the fact that we will never know 
another person's experience fully, or even our own, right? I mean, there's so much of our own experiences we don't understand as well. That's, that's another great thing about poetry, though, that there's always a good poem, I think, always has a sense of possibility or open-endedness, uh, an unknown that is not said in the poem, but is framed in such a way that every reader can kind of access it on their own terms. Uh, and and that's, that's parallel to what's happening in human experience as well. You, uh, you recognize someone else as an, um, as an equal, um, as a fellow, as uh, someone who shares humanity with you. Um, you know you can't understand them fully, uh, but that doesn't preclude you building a connection. So the book has been a long time in the making. I sent off the manuscript to my publishers uh, towards the end of 2018. Um, it was accepted in early 2019 for the 2019 to 2020 season and eventually published in summer 2020. So um, it's been about two years, coming to two years, uh, since I prepared the manuscript uh, for sending off. Um, I think uh, the book has grown o over the months um, I've been working with my publishers to reshape the collection and include new poems. And I think I've grown as poets as well. So I'm excited for the writing that will come next and different projects that are in the pipeline. Um, and also excited for the journey of this book now that it's out there in the world, um, where it will go from here. So, yeah. That's an interesting point, actually, the way that a book gets shaped when once it's been accepted by a publisher and you're working with an editor to kind of get it exactly right or get it kind of as good as it can be you know so how was that process for you in terms of working with an editor on the the final version i thought it was really really helpful so as you pointed out earlier lots of poems in the book inhabit different viewpoints and i think in the way that i initially sequenced my poems um, anyone who wasn't me reading them would have a little bit of whiplash, uh, kind of switching perspectives uh, back and forth. Uh, first person, third person, second person, different periods of history, um, etc. And I think having um, my editor read through the collection and suggest ways of sequencing the poems that would tell a bigger story that transcends any single poem in a way that makes sense to the reader that's not something I could have done on my own um, because I, I wouldn't be able to kind of take a step back and uh, think about how a reader might appreciate or approach the poems cold, as it were. So, so that was really helpful. Um, I think something else that was really helpful was, as I mentioned, being able to add and remove poems from the collection through the process of working through it. So actually the most recent poem in this book uh, comes from early this year. Uh, even though, um, as mentioned, I had prepared the manuscript to send off two years ago. And I found more recently that some of the poems I was writing um, spoke to some of the themes that I developed um, before. Um, and my editor was, was happy to, to kind of take them in as part of the bigger conversation of the book. So that was also really great. The last thing that I wanted to give a shout out to my publishers for was the beautiful cover, which... Uh, includes uh, two tortoises. Uh, of course, the idea of the, the tortoise as a creature that carries its house on its back, so literally fitting the title of the book, Moving House. But also, growing up, we didn't have tortoises at home. So that's a kind of extra brownie point for this cover. It's also in my favorite color. So 
that makes all the difference. Okay, I think I'll read um, this poem, which is called Final Cut. Um, it's the last poem that I wrote in the UK before coming back to Singapore. The thought for this poem arrived uh, not in the cafe where I would usually sit to write, but uh, when I was getting my hair cut, when I was sitting in the, in the chair and uh, the world was swirling around me beyond what I could see or hear. Um, and I wrote this poem, Final Cut. Four days to leaving, he has his hair done. Let's her cradle his head, turn it from side to side. Behind each year, the slow blade moves, removes strands that have taken root of their own accord, tenacious out of sight, secure in knowledge of their chosen plots. The pressure is just right, so for a while, feet angled over the floor. He travels all alone in that uncertain room framed by the chair and lights. Finding the mirror too close, he closes his eyes, approximates the 13-hour nights between to and from, sun warming the earth enough in sleep to set him on his way. Among the things he'll never fathom, this conspiracy of air, how a cold morning or unexpected rain, so often making one city feel like another, might, given perfect conditions, transform into a river high above the rough surface of this sea level, waiting to lift or leave us. Right on cue, a draft enters the shop, sends his cut ends into heavy drifts and banks. No one watches, but he wonders if it is like a dance, which are the coming and which the leaving ones. Thank you for listening. Many thanks to Theophilus Quek. What a top quality guest. All the relevant links to his work can be found in the show notes. My website is frankburton.co.uk. Buy my books, The History of Sarcasm, 100, and Everything I Am, another one coming your way fairly soon too. Bye-bye for now. Flick, flick, boom. Yeah. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye for now. Flick, flick, boom. Yeah. Bye-bye for now.